We're continuing to look at um, will there be a secret rapture of the church before the Great Tribulation? Let me, this isn't in your notes, sketch out for you what is a very typical um, evangelical dispensational. Dispensational means that right to the end of the age, God continues to work with two people, Jew and Gentile, not one church made up of Jew and Gentile. And it was the dominant view, receding now a bit, but still held by many. And, and if you grew up, Watching, uh, let's see, this dates me. Billy Graham's A Thief in the Night, these kind of movies. Here's, here's the general outline of events. I don't subscribe to this, but most of the evangelical church in the uh, 60s, 70s, early 80s, this is generally where they were. This is a bit oversimplified, but generally this is where the church was. The rapture of the church can happen any time. The church believers will be caught up. That's what the word means. It's used once in the New Testament. We'll see it tonight. After that, so we're gone. Then there will be seven years. They get that from Daniel's 70 weeks and the unfulfilled week of years. So there'll be seven years of Great Tribulation, and it wasn't very precisely defined. Almost the whole seven years were looked at as the wrath of God, which is not at all what the book of Revelation teaches. Rapture of the church, seven years of tribulation, then you would have the second coming. Uh, Jesus would come, the saints with him, the dead in Christ would be raised right there, that's at the close of the tribulation, the second coming, the dead in Christ are raised, and then you enter the millennium. You have a thousand years where Christ reigns on the earth for 1,000 years. That's from one reference to it only, really, in Revelation 20 that talks about the thousand years. It's the only time it's mentioned in the Bible. During that thousand years, allegedly, this is when all those prophecies, if you've read the book of Ezekiel, and Isaiah, and the rebuilding of the temple, and all the nations coming to the temple, and the glory of the Lord filling the temple. So during that thousand years, that's when all of those prophecies would be literally fulfilled. And so there's a, there's a, a return to uh, a centrality of Jerusalem, and the temple in Jerusalem. I have, I have a, never mind, millennium. At the close of the millennium, uh, Satan is loosed. Uh, there's the resurrection of the unjust, the wicked, final judgment, and eternal state, new heaven, new earth. So basically it would be rapture, could happen anytime, could happen tonight. No events to be fulfilled. Rapture, seven years, second coming, dead in Christ are raised, thousand years Christ on earth with a, a Jewish emphasis, the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, close of the millennium, resurrection of the wicked, final judgment, and eternity, new heaven, new earth. That's the picture. What we've been looking at last Sunday night in this is that first part. 
this rapture of the church. Um, I know it was, it was badly taught sometimes. You know, you, you'd see movies like, uh, you know, planes are flying and pilots disappear in the rapture and people are wondering where'd the pilot go and all sorts of stuff like this. Does the Bible teach that there will be some kind of secret rapture of the church before we enter the Great Tribulation? I started arguing last week, I don't believe it does. I don't believe it does at all. And that's what we're picking up tonight. Okay? Okay. Revelation 10, 5 to 7. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven, swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. So tonight we're continuing our examination of the events of the, verse 7, quote, the days of the trumpet call sounded by the seventh angel. Days, plural, rather than day, singular, because remember, the sounding of the seventh trumpet contains the seven bowls. Remember, each of the sevens leads right up to the end. Everybody remember that much? That's really important. So in other words, it would seem that as the last angel sounds this trumpet, a series of rapid cataclysmic events, the pouring out of the bowls of God's wrath, these events happen suddenly, cataclysmically. What I did then last week is started to look at uh, some of the places in the New Testament to see if this idea of this sounding of this last trumpet and, and then the seven bulls that get poured out of God's wrath at that moment, is this, is this something we're just making a stretch of in Revelation 10? Or is there anything else in the New Testament that says, you know, I, this resonates. This fits with other passages. So even if you can't have all the details crystal clear, would it at least look like we're on the right track here? Here are some of the verses we talked about last week. Matthew 24, 31. Jesus is speaking in the Olivet Discourse. Uh, Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21. But Matthew 24, 31. And he will send out his angels with, with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. The next verse I looked at was 1 Corinthians 15, 52. These, I think, will be all online. In a moment, Paul speaking, or Paul writing, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. Interesting. For the trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised imperishable. We shall be changed. So you have this sounding of the trumpet. You have the resurrection of the dead, and you have the... Translation, transformation, change of the living. And, and apparently, Paul says, they're at the same time and they're at the sounding of this trumpet. 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 to 17. 
For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. That's dead, those who died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, look, and with, with the trumpet of God. So all of these references have something to do with this last trumpet sounding. The dead in Christ will rise first. I have a pastor buddy out west. He tells me this is proof that his church is going to be raised before everybody else. Dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up. And there's that, there's that word that's Greek word for rapture. Caught up together. So the dead in Christ will rise first. We who are alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. So I still think it's worthwhile to take note of the events that are linked together with the sounding of the trumpet. I don't know if you noticed. It's at the sounding of the trumpet that the dead in Christ are raised. 1 Corinthians 15, 52. It's at the sounding of this trumpet that Jesus Christ comes again. That's 1 Thessalonians 4, 16. And it's at the sounding of this trumpet that the living believers are gathered or caught up. To be with the Lord, that's Matthew 24, 31 and 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. So, as I would see it, all of those events are set forth with reasonable clarity as being um, the key events. The key events of the, now, Revelation 10, 7, of the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel. Now what we did last week is we began by examining some of the uh, main prophetic portions of the New Testament as we tried to kind of tie them in with the visions that John saw in his revelation. And we just started working our way through the words of Jesus in what's called the Olivet Discourse, given on the Mount of Olives, the Olivet Discourse as it's recorded in Matthew 24. What I want to do now is continue with a little more detail and look how does, so there's Revelation 10 and this, and this last trumpet sounding and these cataclysmic events. There's what Jesus outlined would be happening uh, at the sounding of a trumpet. It's not unreasonable to make some kind of link. And now we're going to see some of the things that the Apostle Paul says will happen at the sounding of this trumpet again. So we're going to look at 1 Thessalonians 4.13 to 5.11. It's a bit of a chunk of a passage. I want to read it, and I'd like you to, uh, instead of just hearing me read it, make your, make your eyes follow the words and make your brain think about the words as we, as we read. Paul writes... 1 Thessalonians 4.13 But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. The dead. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So he wants to comfort these people. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, 
So he's tying this to the resurrection somehow, the comfort that he wants to give these people. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, just as surely, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. So Paul says, uh, that's Paul's way of saying, I'm not making this up. I got this from the Lord. That we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. In other words, we're not going to, Jesus comes tonight, we're alive. We're not going to just take off out of here and the poor people that died, well, they just get left behind. We're not going to precede them. That's what he means. What's going to happen, Paul? Well, 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. What's going to happen first? Well, the dead in Christ will rise first. That's the first thing that happens. The graves open up. Then we, let's say we, we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up. That's that word raptured. We will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, keep reading just because it's chapter 5. Now, concerning the times and the seasons. So when's all this going to happen? Well, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. There it is, Billy Graham's movie. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them. As labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, they will not escape. Verse 4. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. Oh. You are all children of the light. Children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do. Let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath. Remember Jesus said, for the elect's sake, those days would be shortened, otherwise no flesh would be saved. We'll miss wrath one way or another. We'll miss God's wrath. God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, doesn't make any difference, he says. We might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and, and build one another up, just as you are doing. So in my view... 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 that we just read and 2 Thessalonians 2 that we're going to study next week are, are two of the most important and inclusive 
passages from the Apostle Paul on the end of the age and the second coming of, of Jesus. What I want to do tonight now is try and, try and fit all these pieces, Revelation 10, Matthew 24, 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, pull some of these pieces together. I think that's the trick to Bible prophecy, not just to have a verse that you like or a favorite passage, but to, to be able to take the different uh, teachings and to say, so what, what are the common elements? How do these things work? Is there an order? Is there a sequence? First, let's look at the purpose of Paul's words. These words didn't just hatch out of nowhere. Paul tells us why he's starting to talk about this with these Christians at Thessalonica. It's in 4.13 of 1 Thessalonians, where he says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. Okay, so there's people who are upset, uh, discomforted, grieving, and Paul wants to say something that's going to give them hope. That's where all of this comes from. I've read books. I was taught in Bible college that these people had become discouraged because their deceased Christian friends and loved ones were going to miss out on the rapture of the church, that secret rapture of the church before the tribulation. Those who had died, they were going to miss out on that and they would have to remain in the graves until the second coming of Jesus at the close of the tribulation. And if, you know what? If you want to believe that, you're absolutely entitled to believe it. Your salvation doesn't hinge on it. It makes no sense to me. It makes no sense to me at all. If these Christians were, for a couple of reasons... If these Christians were addressing Paul because they're concerned their loved ones were going to miss a rapture before the Great Tribulation and not be resurrected until after the Tribulation, it's pretty hard to understand why they'd be all that worried. Paul would just say, it's seven years. They're dead. They're not missing anything. They're not going to experience anything. Don't worry about it. That's what I would have said. What do you think? They're going to be the dead in the grave? They're going to be worried about Antichrist or the mark of the beast or any of that stuff? No. Secondly, I think the context of Paul's response contains the real reason for their concern. Look at verse 13 carefully. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve... And it's the last part of this sentence that tells the story. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Who are those others? Who are people who have no hope? Well, we know who that is. This is the godless. The unbelievers. They come on the scene. They die with nothing to look forward to but judgment. Don't grieve like those who have no hope. Paul doesn't want these Christians to look forward to the end of the age, the return of the Lord, and think that their departed loved ones, the ones that have died, like they're just going to miss it, just like the pagan world around them. Paul doesn't want these Christian people to ever forget that Jesus is Lord not only of the living, but also of 
the dead. Well, that's a nice theory, Pastor Don. How do you know that? Well, I don't know, know, know it like I know Jesus is my Savior. But I think there's good evidence for it. Let me just, let me just point out something. Apparently, Paul encountered people in the churches he established. Thessalonica was one of them. But Paul encountered people in these churches, new Christians, who came out of all sorts of pagan backgrounds. Many of them embraced the moral teachings of Jesus, but forgot about the centrality of his resurrection and the resurrection of believers. How do you know that, Pastor Don? Look at, there's a passage we read at funerals a lot, but of course at funerals you really don't get a chance to stop and talk about the verses the way you would in a teaching time like this. Here's a passage that gets read at so many Christian funerals. 1 Corinthians 15, 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, and now here's the important part of the sentence. If I were underlining, this is the part I'd underline. How can some of you, not the pagans, he's writing to the church, how can, how can some of you, you people in the church, how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? Well, we know the Sadducees and other religious leaders, Jewish leaders, many of whom uh, these Christian people came out of backgrounds like that, but also all sorts of pagan religions as well. Paul indicates to the church at Corinth that there were people actually saying. How can you say? There were people teaching. There were people propagating the message right in the churches that Paul established. There's no resurrection from the dead. Once you die, you die. Maybe your soul lives on, but you're, once you die, you, you die. And I would submit to you that that's a more likely explanation for these people in Thessalonica. Paul writes to them, don't be like people who have no hope. That's not you. He's not, so he's not trying to encourage them because, well, the dead will have to wait seven years before they're raised. He's trying to encourage them because there's all sorts of people who have been telling them, when you're dead, you're dead. That's it for the body. Paul wants to comfort these Christians in the face of the death of their departed loved ones. He wants to remind them, reteach them, that nothing separates us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, not even death. He wants them to remember the reality of the resurrection from the dead. If, you, if, if, if you've never heard it, it should be said at every funeral that happens in this church. The blessed hope of the Christian is not dying... And going to be with Jesus. You heard me say that. The blessed hope of the Christian is not dying and having his spirit go to be with Jesus. That's called the intermediate state. It's temporary. The blessed hope of the Christian, shouted at every funeral, is the resurrection of the body. That's what we're waiting for. Jesus to come again. And my dad's going to pop out of that grave, shake the dust out of his hair. And we will live as corporal beings forever. That's the blessed hope. 
So that's what prompted these words from Paul to the church in Thessalonica. Point number two. We'll go quicker, sorry. In Paul's understanding, the resurrection of departed believers, dead believers, it takes place at the second coming of Jesus. You see that in 14 through 18. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. It's the dead. That's the first thing that's going to happen. The dead are going to be raised. We're not going to precede them. Remember, Paul said? How gracious of God to make sure the dead don't miss a thing. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. The Lord himself will descend from heaven, cry of command, voice of an archangel, the trumpet, the sound of the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first. We who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So here's my thoughts here. A, those who have died don't miss any of the great end time events. That's in 14 and 15. I don't just want to rush past this. Why? God can do this any way he wants. Why does he do it so that the very first thing that happens as the events of the second coming unfold, why does he, why does he structure it so the, the resurrection of dead believers happens first? I'll tell you why I think it works that way. I think of all the dear departed saints. I've been here 35 years. And I think of all the Christian people that used to be part of this church. And they're gone from us. I think of all of them that sang about the second coming of Jesus. I think of all of them that read it in their Bibles. I think of dear departed saints who prayed for their families and their loved ones into the kingdom, who, who taught Sunday school classes about Jesus coming again, and then they died. How sad it would be if after teaching it and singing about it and listening to it and praying about it and longing for it, how sad it would be they never actually got to see it happen. And I believe that's why the first, in his mercy, the very first thing that's going to happen when Jesus comes is the dead are going to be raised. Dead believers are going to be raised and they're going to see what they longed for all those years. They will see it just as clearly as if we're alive, any of us will see it when it happens. And you're beholding the mercy of God. Paul says they will see it. They may have been dead a thousand years. I wonder, you wonder, don't you? What, what, is, what is Noah going to think when he sees the second coming of Jesus? Abraham. Moses. 
People who, who only, we looked at it this morning, who only got to deal with shadows and pictures and ideas, never had the full picture that you and I have, they will, they will see it. All right, second thing, B. The resurrection of departed saints, the rapture or the catching up, this is, that's the only passage where it's used in the New Testament, and the coming of Jesus all take place at the same time at the sounding of a great trumpet. I get that in 16, 17, and 18. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, voice of the archangel, sound of the trumpet of God, dead in Christ rise first. We who are alive, who are left, will be raptured, caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord doesn't say we're going to go disappearing into heaven. It just says we're going to be with him. Wherever he is, we will be with him. Encourage one another. Then Paul says he, he got these words from, from Jesus himself in verse 15. We declare this to you by a word from the Lord. That shouldn't surprise us because we looked at the words of Jesus in Matthew 24, 30 and 31. Jesus said... Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. They will gather his elect from the four winds, one end of heaven to the other. That's the same idea that you see in 1 Thessalonians 4.16. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, the voice of the archangel. The sound of the trumpet call of God, the dead in Christ will rise first. Jesus and Paul emphasized the same kind of thing. The first listeners to Jesus' words were mostly Jews. Most of the people reading Paul's words were Gentiles. But the very same thing is said to both. When Jesus comes again, trumpet will sound... Jesus clearly places it after the tribulation. That's in Matthew 24, 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light. Then what I just read. So when you put it all together, I think, I think the best evidence is that the teaching of both Jesus and Paul and John, John's more recording of vision than teaching, but those three together, what we see is it's the moment when the dead are raised, living saints are transformed and raptured. All that happens at the sounding of the trumpet when Jesus comes. I see no way. I see no way to bring a, a division or a separation of those events in either Jesus or Paul or John. They seem, they seem tied together. There's, there's, Jesus comes again. We're not waiting for him to come again and again. There's no third coming. There's a second coming. Well, Pastor Don, but he, he says it's going to be like a thief. At least to the third point. Concerning the times and season, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. They will not escape. Well, there it is, Pastor Don. 
There's that secret rapture sneaking up on us like a thief in the night. How do you explain that? Well, it's not hard. There are two things to note in response. As Paul makes very clear in the next verse, a surprise rapture is exactly what is not described in these verses. Where he says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 4, and 5, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. You're all children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So in other words, the day of the Lord, we'll consider that phrase in just a minute, it will come as a thief, but only for the careless unbelievers. Paul's whole point in this passage, and many other passages in the New Testament, is that Christians, at least watchful Christians, should not be surprised at the second coming of Jesus. Far from it, they should be expecting it. They should see it coming in advance. Really, Pastor Don, where do you get that idea? I get it from Jesus. Matthew 24, 28, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. 32 and 33, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as the branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. It's not like a thief for you. And, and the second important thing to notice in Paul's reference to like a thief is the way Paul uses that phrase, the day of the Lord. You see that in 1 Thessalonians 5, 2? For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. For the careless, for those not watching. And the reason I want you to take note of that important phrase is because it's the only time Paul uses it. We're almost done now. Hang in there. So I'm kind of getting ahead of myself a little bit. Next week we're going to look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. But look at where he uses that phrase, the day of the Lord. <clears throat> it's in 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 to 3. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or by a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. There's that phrase. It's the only time he uses it. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. I'm, I'm not launching into a study of 2 Thessalonians 2 tonight. I will next Sunday night. But it's just enough to notice, <clears throat> Paul tells these Christians that the day of the Lord won't come until, 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, the, the man of lawlessness is revealed. And, and that isn't going to happen, no matter what school of Bible prophecy you hold to. Okay? Doesn't matter. No matter what school of Bible prophecy you hold to, that revelation of the man of sin isn't going to happen until well into the tribulation. What kind of people should we be in view of this? 
kind of Christians ought we be right now? 1 Thessalonians 5, 6-11. I just want to wrap this up practically and I'll just be five minutes. Well, let us then not be asleep. Not talking about just about sleeping in church. But, but let's not be asleep as others do. There's people that are just dense to all of this. That's what he's saying. So, so let us keep awake and be sober. That's an important word. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. But, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober. That's the third reference. Having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Something, something about this, this eternal hope that protects the mind. Keeps you from temptation and desperation and distraction. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not talking now just about I put my hand up and I got saved. Salvation means deliverance, protection, all of God's will, his future plan being fulfilled for you. That kind of salvation, the final salvation. Through our Lord Jesus Christ who died so that whether we are awake or asleep, now he means dead or alive, we might live for him. Right up until you die. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you're doing. So here's what I see. Three quick things. Verses 6 and 7 warn against being distracted and caught up with the allurements of this world. That's what those pictures of drunkenness and carousing. So here's the lesson. Knowing this is coming. Knowing that it's closer now than it was last month. We know that much for sure. It's not just that I avoid sinful things. It's that I avoid anything that will incline my mind and heart to carelessness. I, I don't just avoid what's wicked. I avoid things that will... make me less careful. I avoid things that will, that will reduce my capacity for good judgment. I avoid things that will keep me from making the best decisions that I can make because it's too late in the game, he says. He doesn't just mean drunk like, not that. He means, he means you, you, can, you can be drunken with Netflix, drunken with the mall, drunken with tearing down the old barns and building bigger ones. And, and, he's, and he's saying, as this comes closer, Christians need to be more and more aware of anything that's going to keep them from making eternal decisions well. That's the first thing. Second thing, verses 8 and 9 encourage us to maintain faith, hope, and love as uh, the deepest realities of our hearts. There's, there's uh, 
oops, you watch, you, you watch the news and you see every second political leader and every second actor involved in sexual immorality and you wonder what in the world's going on and, and it's very easy, it's very easy to think that somehow life is just slipping away and everything's out of control and I'm not sure God's even aware of how to fix this anymore. And, and Paul writes to people who knew what it was to, to be deeply persecuted for their faith, to have their homes taken, to have relationships with families so severed because of believers and their new commitment to Christ in a family that worshipped all sorts of idols together and all of a sudden one of the sons or the daughters won't be at the table because, because Christians are forbidden to join into these idolatrous celebrations. These people knew what it was to experience deep persecution. Paul says you protect your brain and your heart with the hope. And thirdly, it relates to the same thing. Encourage. We're encouraged to cherish the hope of future relationship with those who die in the Lord. It's not just something we enjoy ourselves. There are bereaved people, people who lose loved ones. And the last thing Paul says, this isn't just so you could draw up your eschatological chart. See, here's what's happening. This is so you can come to somebody who's brokenhearted at the death of a Christian loved one, and you can say, there's hope. There's hope. Let's pray.